Welcome to the Legal Download Podcast, a rundown of the latest issues impacting your business from Kelly Dry. Good afternoon and welcome to this episode of the Legal Download, where we'll be discussing ransomware and cybersecurity during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Matt Luzatter and I advise and represent companies in connection with regulatory and compliance issues and commercial disputes. Since COVID-19 emerged earlier this year, I've helped companies navigate a number of issues related to this crisis. I'm joined today by my partner, Aaron Burstein, who will share his experiences and knowledge on this issue. Aaron practices in the areas of privacy, data security, and consumer protection law. He draws on nearly 10 years of government experience at the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, FTC, and DOJ to advise clients across industries. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks, Matt. I'm glad to be with you. A lot has changed since the start of this pandemic. Uh, What are some of the vulnerabilities that uh, present challenges from a cybersecurity perspective? Well, there's a pretty big range of challenges that we're facing as as businesses and as attorneys who advise them on data security and data protection issues. I'll start with the kind of obvious ones, which is that anytime there's an event of this magnitude or even anything close to it, it provides a way for adversaries to generate interest in malicious emails, malicious software, and other ways of attacking systems and exploiting vulnerabilities. So whether it is news that may be related to coronavirus or something relating to government programs that are part of the economic and and public health response or anything of that nature, those sorts of attention-grabbing pieces of content can be really helpful to attackers who are looking to exploit systems. But there's a lot more than that going on at this point. Remember that we went through this massive and very sudden change in the way that people work and the way that companies manage employees and and so forth. Um, Although a lot of companies had I think planned for scenarios where maybe everyone would be working remotely for some period of time or some people would be working remotely for long periods of time. I don't think it was common to have this scenario in mind where everyone is remote for an extended period of time and it looks like it's going to be um, longer than a lot of forecasts initially predicted. So that is also, I think, bringing some of the more human elements of security and and the challenges that that um, brings along with it into focus. We're all under a lot of pressure to do our jobs and uh, make sure our kids are occupied and, you know, deal with a lot of um, pressing needs that, that clients or customers might have. And that can exacerbate a very long-standing challenge with IT security or data security, which is that sometimes security measures can be difficult to navigate or get in the way of getting something done. And so I think it's important to recognize that that's a continuing source of pressure on IT security policies. And, uh, you know, paying attention to that and being mindful of it can 
help address some of the um, the malicious activities that are latching on to the, the coronavirus and, and COVID-19 phenomena. So we know that one of those, you know, the more malicious activities out there is ransomware um, that, that, that is being sort of put under this COVID-19 cover on e- emails and uh, getting people to, to, to click on links. And that's certainly a possibility that the companies need to need to prepare for. How, how is a company best going to prepare for a ransomware attack? Well, I think that a lot of the preparations, uh, and maybe this is some good news, a lot of the preparations aren't necessarily specific to coronavirus. Um, they're more general ransomware protections, but the pandemic certainly provides a good reminder and a good prompt for us to make sure that the plans that we have in place for dealing with ransomware are um, fit for their needs and also take into account this extra element of many, many people being remote and unable to get into the office. So let's just start with the basics. One really important element is just um, having a program of of data governance and a um, good sense of what data we have, um, how it's broken down into different categories like HR, trade secrets, personal information, those sorts of things. So knowing what we have, where it's stored, who has access to it, um, that's a, a fundamental building block of any data security or, or data protection program. Um, beyond that, certainly having a plan that addresses ransomware in particular is important. So having something like a formal written incident response plan that identifies um, what types of incidents trigger um, additional resources being devoted to the problem, identifying who gets involved and when, and um, having some background where we've worked through those decisions, maybe in the form of a tabletop exercise. Those are all um, very important elements of, of dealing with ransomware. And I think the coronavirus element that we would want to add to that is the possibility that uh, it could be very hard to put teams together in one place. And often in these situations, we're dealing with IT systems that do not function as we normally expect them to. And so having alternative communications channels identified in advance and, and known to the likely participants is, um, is really important. In addition to that, I think it's good to take a look at Um, insurance coverage that would apply to these types of incidents. And then also, uh, you know, among the million other things that everyone is dealing with at the moment, um, taking some time maybe to test out key parts of of the plan to make sure that uh, if if a ransomware incident happens, um, the the plan that is, is written down will actually work in practice. 
So you mentioned there the incident response plan, uh, insurance, uh, communications controls. Sounds like legal is going to be heavily involved in, in at least some of these areas. Um, what are some of the top considerations that in-house counsel need to keep in mind when, they're, when it comes to ransomware? Uh, well, certainly being aware that, that legal will be heavily involved is, is a starting point and um, making sure that key decision makers uh, will, will look to legal for, um, for direction and advice is, um, is important for a couple of reasons. One is to, to help maintain privilege and the other is just to uh, try to maintain orderly communications and orderly decision-making in the midst of an incident that uh, can move quickly, cause massive disruption to a business and uh, create a huge amount of of risk to ongoing operations and and business relationships. Uh, So so that's one thing that that in-house counsel should um, be thinking about in advance. Another is... uh, uh, having a plan for retaining outside counsel. Um, and that is a really important step for helping to maintain privilege um, and helping to organize resources that uh, often need to be brought to bear on uh, containing and uh, resolving ransomware attacks. I think another um, element is, is to take a look at insurance coverage things like deductibles, um, knowing where those are set uh, um, is going to be helpful. But then also how your policy um, handles the hiring of third-party experts, uh, how it governs the choices that you have in in, um, making those decisions, um, and then also just being, being ready to work through outside counsel to the maximum extent possible to um, uh, retain third parties to, to help with investigations and remediation. So you've got a couple of concepts in there that I'd, I'd like to dig into, given, given some recent reporting, um, maintaining privilege and third-party retention. So, you know, last week, a district court upheld a magistrate judge's order requir- requiring Capital One to provide plaintiff's attorneys with a third-party incident response report detailing the circumstances around the bank's recent data breach. What are some implications of this ruling? What can we learn from it? Well, I, I think the, the main takeaway is that um, courts will take a pretty close look at um, the structure of a, uh, a company's relationship with any third-party expert, um, you know, whether it's, it's a, a forensic expert or other type of security expert. And in, in finding that the third-party report in this case uh, was not privileged, the, the magistrate and then the, uh, the district court pointed to a couple of things. Um, one was that there was, was an existing um, services agreement and um, in place between the company and uh, the third-party expert that was brought in um, rather than one that was um, retained directly by outside counsel. Um, there were some 
maneuvers to to try to fit things more into um, into the direct retention by outside counsel, um, but it wasn't enough to to satisfy the court. Um, the The court looked at the fact that um, the budget for the expert didn't come out of the legal department, and that made it look more like a business expense or something that would have been done um, even in the absence of potential litigation. And then there was also broader distribution of the report that the third party expert prepared than the court thought was consistent with maintaining privilege. So that all sort of brings together a few lessons um, you know, like having outside counsel retain a third party, having a scope of work that really specifically defines how the work being done is distinct from any sort of previous business relationship. Um, and then really being careful about how any written product is distributed and making sure that uh, distribution is limited to um, decision makers who who have a need to know, um, not going to any third parties, and keeping track of all of that so that um, there's a record uh, that demonstrates that that uh, reports were not more broadly distributed than um, than you would expect with with a privileged um, document. Uh, so so I think those are some of the takeaways. So we've talked about third parties in terms of, of consultants, and certainly it's it's important to to build in who's controlling and even paying for third party consultants when there's a breach. Um, third parties, in another context, kind of at the opposite end of it, their access to systems bring another element of risk. From a contractual perspective, what can organizations do to protect themselves from that third party risk? Well, I think. One place to start is to make sure that the contract is really specific about the scope and the purpose of any third party access so that it's very clear to uh, to both sides who's going to be accessing um, an organization systems and, and why and what the limits are. Uh, um, in addition to that, uh, certainly looking at in indemnification provisions and limits on liability are um, really crucial safeguards in terms of, of third-party access. And, and then also thinking about um, whether any information is going to leave our system and go to the third party, uh, in which case we really want to make sure that it's, it's treated as if it were still housed on um, on the organization's own system. So all of the physical and administrative and technical safeguards that, that would apply um, in the organization's environment should be at least as strong for the third party. Um, and, you know, again, not just at the technical level, but in terms of background checks for personnel, physical controls like access cards uh, um, to uh, areas where um, there are systems that, that allow access to this information. 
Um, I, th I think those are all important things to, to have written in a contract uh, to, uh, to protect information. And then also thinking about audit rights and um, defining obligations of the third party to report incidents and, you know, setting specific timelines for that type of reporting can often be um, helpful and provide certainty under, um, under difficult circumstances. I think that's important because, I mean, the main reason we enter into contracts is for certainty. Um, and, and I think that uh, thinking through all those issues ahead of time is, is really important, um, just like, you know, your incident response plan. Aaron, you've been on both the government side of things and in private practice. I'd be remiss if I didn't at least ask you, what is one of the key lessons that you've learned about this area of data protection law? I think one really helpful perspective to bring to this is thinking in terms of being able to demonstrate that you have a system in place to protect data and, you know, whether it's personal data or otherwise. If something goes wrong, uh, it is always helpful to be able to um, point to uh, the structure that was in place to prevent it um, and to be able to demonstrate that a company had taken reasonable measures to, um, to prevent it. Um, that will often uh, um, help to illustrate that there was an isolated incident and no one is perfect versus um, being in a situation where it's hard to say that there was a, a system of controls in place and that there might have been a broader, more systemic failure. Um, that's not the only distinction that, that will be important to regulators, but um, really being able to present um, a, a systematic plan or systematic approach to protecting data um, can be very helpful. And I, I think that sort of lines up with the, um, some of the preparatory steps that, that we discussed a little bit earlier. Now, I, I've got to ask, because you're, you're also licensed to practice law in California. California is driving a lot of these requirements that, uh, that companies are, are seeking to fulfill here. I saw the news the other. What is the CPRA that's on the November 2020 ballot in California? And, you know, how should companies view this development? Is, is this, you know, a, a consumer protection 2.0? Well, uh, the CPRA or CIPRA or CCPA 2.0, those, those are all fair names for it. Um, it is going to be on the ballot in November, as he said. It will, if it passes, um, create some pretty broad and substantive changes to California's existing consumer privacy law, which um, just became subject to uh, enforcement by the Attorney General yesterday on, on July 1st. Um, the, the timeline for the CPRA is a little bit drawn out. It, it wouldn't really go into effect until 
January of 2023, with with a couple of exceptions. Um, so I think we're in the position of still absorbing the CCPA and the regulations that the Attorney General has proposed, but um, are not yet final. So there really are a lot of issues to uh, keep us busy for the next um, months and and year plus. Um, you know, it's never to start to it's never too soon to start thinking about how CIPRA will change the law and what it might mean for compliance. But um, it's certainly understandable that companies are, are continuing to deal with um, the, the, the very real challenges that they face in um, evolving their CCPA compliance programs. And, um, you know, it, it's reasonable to focus there for the time being. Nice. We've got a, a another acronym to add to our 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 vocabulary here of something else we've got to be considering way off in the future it seems now. But I know that the CCPA came up quicker than, than I think a lot of folks uh, expected with the with this enforcement deadline. Um, Aaron, if someone wants to get a hold of you and discuss these topics more, what's a good way to reach you? Sure, email is certainly a a, a good way to do it. Uh, you can reach me at. A Burstein, A-B-U-R-S-T-E-I-N at kellydry.com. Well, thank you very much. This has been a, uh, an engaging uh, conversation about something that's sort of, you know, top of a lot of uh, not only in-house attorneys' minds, but also you know, IT professionals, CISOs. And uh, I want to thank you for your time today. If anyone wants to get a hold of me, um, I'm also available via email at M-L-U-Z as in zebra, A. D-D-E-R at kellydry.com. And then also please visit kellydry.com and check out our COVID-19 resource website where this podcast is available along with other ones and a collection of written material that can help uh, you navigate through what is this very difficult time. Thank you everyone for joining us today and thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Matt. Great to be with you. For additional information on this and other topics, please visit kellydry.com. Kelly Dry has podcasts available through your podcast provider.